This episode contains stories about mental ill health, police violence, death, racism, suicide, self-harm, and abuse. Please be mindful when you choose to listen. We'll also be talking about self-inflicted deaths, which is the language we use at Inquest around what is more commonly called suicide. Blood, I go run. If no justice, no come. You're listening to Unlawful Killing. Death, resistance and the fight for justice. A podcast by Inquest, the only charity fighting alongside families bereaved by deaths involving the state, including police, prison and mental health services. I'm Lee Lawrence, advocate and son of Cherry Gross, who was shot by the Metropolitan Police, which sparked the 1985 Brixton uprisings. And I'm Lucy Brisbane from Inquest. In this series, we're diving into our 40-year history of campaigning. We'll be doing this through conversations with those at the centre of these stories. Episode 5, Mental Health, Part 1. So, you know, when I got the news that he'd been killed, it had a massive, profound effect on me. Because when you're family, no matter how much time passes, you're still family. And the impact is still the same. Because you, it's not just about losing Mike, it was about what I saw it was doing to my auntie and his brothers and sisters, the grief and the pain it was causing them. We spent the last two episodes looking at prisons and their fatal consequences. From Jake Foxall to Liridan Saliuka, we looked at who dies in our prisons, what connects these deaths and the families left fighting for justice. But now we want to look at the people who die in the care of our mental health system. And what happens when these systems of criminal justice and mental health care collide? Mental health services are often framed as the caring alternative to policing and prisons. But we'll be looking at what happens when the very system designed to protect us fails to do just that. In this episode, we'll be hearing from two voices whose loved ones died due to the utter failure of mental health services in this country. While these are very different instances of state violence and neglect, we want to show just how far-reaching the scale of the problem is and the communities it harms the most. So it's funny how, you know, mental health awareness now is everywhere and the stigma around mental health has been broken down so we have a better understanding of our mental health and mental well-being and the understanding that all of us can go through a kind of mental health episode or can go through an experience or something could happen which could off balance us however when we speak about people with mental health who die at the hands of the system you know whether it's in prisons or hands of the police or even in medical institutions that is something that I feel we still don't talk enough about there's still a lot of taboo 
around that. And it's easy for people to come to their assumptions that, you know, if somebody had mental health issues and they were out of control and they had to be restrained or die as a result of that, that that's reasonable. We're, we're privy to hearing those stories from the people who have died, their loved ones who have campaigned for them. And I suppose for the listeners, I think it's important to understand the other side of the story and to hear it from the family's perspective and the impact these deaths or killings have on not only the person themselves, but the loved ones and the community. Yeah, I think as a charity, Inquest has this really broad role in looking across all these different, quite separate and disparate systems, prisons, policing, mental health settings. But actually, when you look at what happens to people, it's all so intertwined and the experiences across different settings and the interactions with all the different parts of the system often come together in individual stories. But the thing that feels very different with when you talk about mental health, you know, with policing and to some extent with prisons, there's some awareness of like this injustice and like there's people going to go out on the streets and campaign against police violence, police brutality, injustices in prisons. It seems obvious. But when you're talking about people dying in mental health hospitals, the conversation feels very different. And the campaigns actually feel very separate and there's not the same awareness. It feels like people think there's a lot more inevitability to people dying, especially suicides or self-inflicted deaths in mental health settings. So the families come up against a very different type of problem and a very different challenge in fighting for truth and justice and what that looks like. A recent conversation that's been happening in London and about the Metropolitan Police is that the Metropolitan Police have said they're no longer going to be responding to mental health calls because very often police are on the front line of responding to people in mental health crisis but very often we see that they're not equipped and also just not the appropriate people to be responding to people who need care and support not restraint or handcuffs or whatever it is. As part of our oral history project, we spoke to Tipa Naftali, a community and social justice campaigner. Tipa's cousin, Mikey Powell, died after being violently restrained by West Midlands police following a mental health crisis in 2003. We're going to start with Tipa telling us about Mikey and the impact that his death had on his family. But Mikey was the one that was really the mummy's boy and he was really attentive to her needs. And when I left school... I used to see Mikey all the time at dances and things like that because he was very popular in the area. Everybody knew Mikey and he used to hold blues parties and stuff like that. So we, we were never in our adult years and teen and teen years and adult years, we, were, we weren't really that close. But he was still my cousin. So, you know, when I got the news that he'd been killed, it had a massive, profound effect on me because... Uh, when you're family, no matter how much time passes, you're still family. And the impact is still the same because you it's not just about losing Mikey. It was about what I saw it was doing to my auntie and his brothers and sisters. The grief and the pain it was causing them uh, energised me to do more to support them. Mikey was a 38-year-old black man and father of three. He'd previously experienced short episodes of mental ill health but he knew how to look after himself and usually recovered. 
On the 7th of September 2003, Mikey had a mental health episode at his mum's house and she called the police. His mum, Clarissa, had called the police when Mikey was unwell before and they'd responded helpfully. So she felt like that was a safe option. She thought they'd come and they'd take him to hospital. But that wasn't what happened. When West Midlands police arrived, they drove a police car at him and Mikey was hit. They beat him. They used CS gas, which is like pepper spray. Eight officers restrained Mikey for over 16 minutes. He was thrown into the back of a police van and driven to a police station, not a hospital, and later died. It's shocking. And I'm not somebody who is adverse to knowing and hearing stories and even going through my own experience. But every time you hear these things, you just think, what the hell? Why would you come so heavy handed? Why would you knock him over? Why would it take 16 minutes to restrain him when there's eight of you? No wonder why he died, because excessive force, basically. That's all I'm visualising in my head when you've just told me the story. And how distraught must that mum be that the people she called to help her and him are the same people that ended up killing him? She wanted care. But the police responded with violence. And that is the experience of many of the families that we've worked with. People who have died in police custody or in police contact. They've been having a mental health crisis. They need help. And even some of them were in hospital when the police were called. And then they've died at the hands of police. Just to name a few of those people who have died over the years. Ibrahim Asay. Roger Sylvester. Shaney Lewis, Sean Rigg, Kevin Clark, Oladeji Omashore. And Lucy, with all those names that you mentioned, there's one common denominator that they're all black men. Exactly. And Tipa told us a bit about the history of racism and mental health care in this country. Well, one of the controversial cases which you may know about is David Rocky Bennett, a young black man in a mental health institution, restrained, killed him. And even before before Rocky, um, black men in particular were routinely uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia where their white counterparts displaying the same sort of conditions would not be. And they would end up in the mental health system, drugged up to their eyes and not able to function because of the side effects of the drugs. Mikey had seen all of that. So he didn't want to get into the into the system, and I'll come to him in a moment. But yeah, it was uh, in the eighties and nineties. Mental health system there wasn't it wasn't really about care. It was just about incarceration and um, pacification, um, drugging people up to the eyeballs uh, so that they just didn't function and couldn't then you know be they were just controlled. Yeah, it was all about control. It wasn't about developing their capacity to function. As a human being, it was just about suppressing, suppressing them and keeping them kind of locked up um, f- for years in many cases. It's interesting that Tipa is talking here about the 70s, 80s. That's a time when we had a huge shift in mental health care in this country. So the last asylums where people were kind of just lock up, locked up and throw away the key. They were shut down off the back of years of campaigning from survivors and anti-psychiatry movements. And then we had the introduction of the new Mental Health Act, which was brought in 
under Margaret Thatcher. And actually, that is the same Mental Health Act that we have today, although there have been reforms. That is the legal framework that we're operating within. But the 80s is also a time that inquest was set up. And it's the same time that your mum was shot by the police. It's a big moment of political and cultural shifts. Yeah, and what we're seeing through this podcast is that common theme around nothing changes unless we challenge the system to change. It's only when we come together and we apply that pressure that things change. And it's sad that there's never this self-reflection of what we're doing doesn't work. What we're doing is we're getting things wrong. It's causing harm, it's causing damage, and we need to change it for the right reasons. But it is off of the back of people's lives who have been sacrificed and loved ones having to muster up the energy to campaign against all of this sort of brutal behaviour towards people who are mentally ill, or we know that also there's blatant racism that plays a part in it too. And this kind of typical dangerous black man they portray this image of and and they get society to be scared of this image and feel that this image needs to be controlled somewhat yeah and that kind of like mad bad dangerous narrative about black men is something that comes up in all the cases that we mentioned and something that tipper kind of brought us to thinking about around the history of racism in our mental health system so that kind of history of racism is really important to talk about but also It's very current. Like, we're talking about the 80s, but if you look at today, black men are 40% more likely to come into contact with mental health services through the criminal justice system. The system that's supposed to care for us is still institutionally racist, and these examples of deaths in mental health settings involving restraint and involving police still disproportionately impact Black men, black men are five times more likely to be detained under the Mental Health Act than white people. What does that tell us about what's happening now, not just in the 80s? What it tells us is that (laughs) we need to be really concerned about this. And I suppose we've been covering whether it's, you know, death in custody by police, you know, whether it's about um, self-inflicted deaths in prison or whether it's, you know, in mental institutions, right? The bottom line is, you know, the black man has nowhere to go in terms of feeling safe in any of these environments. What's interesting in these conversations, though, is at the same time, there's this much less explicit form of violence and neglect that affects huge numbers of people, but is much less visible and obvious as a form of state violence. And that is the suicide, the self-harm, the deaths that are happening to all kinds of people in our mental health hospitals. And one of the people that knows that only too well is Moira Dirty. Moira's daughter Jess was 27 when she took her own life in a crisis house in Bristol in 2020. And Lucy, what do we mean by a crisis house? A crisis house offers short-term support to people who are in mental health crisis but it's outside of a hospital setting. So it's more like a residential house on a street. You wouldn't even know it's there. Let us hear from Moira about some of the failures that led to Jess's death. They could have used a bit of common sense. Honestly, I just felt that common sense was so lacking in that place. Clear red flags, clear you know, increasing risk. Well, would you not get a doctor? Would you not get a clini- clinician in? They could have done that. 
but they just didn't I was told by somebody oh people are always saying they're going to kill themselves I've had so many meetings with so many people people always say that so how are you going to judge but where there are very specific warnings and indicators and even the investigation found that there were real indicators there the appropriate level of training the appropriate level of clinical oversight of that institution would have kept her safe because there would have been a step-by-step guide to what you do and now that she's dead they've put a step-by-step guide in well why do they have to wait for her to die for that to happen lack of oversight lack of training is really how i feel about the input that jess got the person that she needed to speak to the psychiatrist who was trying to start her on medication she waited months to see a psychiatrist and she was very suspicious of medication because she'd had previous adverse effects and the psychiatrist prescribed her a type of drug but it's also an antipsychotic drug so it's got dual it's got dual use but of course Jess being Jess having discussed it all went away and looked up this drug and found all these questions and went back could the psychiatrist please tell her the answers to all these questions and then she could just you know decide to take the medicine well the psychiatrist didn't come back to her was too busy didn't respond so nobody responded none of the health workers looking after her picked up the issue of medication with her because it was a bit of a touchy subject with her everybody was a little bit scared of her disengaging there was no i felt that the system wasn't they weren't assertive enough the people looking after her and i say that because i couldn't be assertive with jess either i know what she was like there's so many stupid things but they just don't do it and that makes me really angry and this will carry on happening and carry on happening because they're they're not training they're not having the appropriately paid staff with with levels of training that they need i mean the people that they have working as community mental health people they're not professionally qualified so in light of you know this podcast we spoke about not having all the answers but exploring ideas and people have different views around what i mean there's a common view around the system being broken but it's around what needs to be done is where I feel there's different opinions. And I I suppose just listening to that, I'm hearing that it's about training and it's about quality of staff and common sense and people knowing what they're doing and doing their job properly and maybe people not being paid enough to do certain jobs and that's why you're not getting the quality of service. So it's a different perspective in terms of what we were saying before, when we looked at, for example, Tipa, we're saying, you know, this is a, a an example of racism and how black people are, you know, seen and stereotyped and so on and so forth. Here's another aspect of that. And I think what we all need to take away from this is that regardless of what part of the system you want to focus on in terms of what's broken, we are looking at a broken system that does need to be fixed. And just because it doesn't affect you right now, today, in this moment, don't believe that it won't do one day or won't affect one of your loved ones one day. So therefore, it's something that I think we just all need to be paying attention to. Yeah, and I think we can all relate to the fact that there are times in the lives of our loved ones or of ourselves where we've needed support for our mental health or where we might you know, be looking for a bit of help. And we're in the situation where people are struggling to access mental health care at the very basic level. And the failures that Moira is talking about and what happened to Jess, it's not rocket science. Sometimes we're made to feel like people who are in mental health crisis, who are suicidal, like 
it's also difficult and the systems, it's very complicated to respond to these difficult, difficult people, which is kind of the feeling that you got. But actually then what Moira is talking about, what needs to change, it's not that difficult. Like the staff who were there didn't have the skills that they needed to provide the care that was required. And this is someone who's already got to the point where she's been put in a crisis house because she's in crisis and yet they're not equipped to respond and provide any level of care. So as we have increasing awareness around mental illness and how that can impact all of us potentially, there's not so much awareness on what our mental health system does and how it does it. So you can obviously access mental health support through your GP or if you're in a crisis situation through A&E or potentially you can get to the point where you might be in a position where you're going to be detained under the Mental Health Act, not voluntarily, or you can be in a position where you're going to somewhere like a crisis house voluntarily because you know that you need that support. And, you know, we have to be explicit in saying that for people listening who have experienced mental health crisis, there are services which will support people. And we're talking about the worst case scenarios. However, there are instances when people try to access care at all these different points and they're just not receiving the support that they need. And very often they'll have been waiting already for a very long time for the support and then it gets to this crisis point and it's not there. So when we're talking about the systems and we're talking about people dying, we also need to look back, not just at the moment of crisis, but at all the things that have happened before and the ways in which they've been failed. And when we're talking about self-inflicted deaths and suicide something that comes up a lot is that you know it's easy to blame or blaming individuals for their own deaths rather than looking at the system failures but something we also need to think about is how the system is responding differently to different people Jess was a young woman and young women are treated in a certain way by the system and often failed in a particular way that's very gendered And there's a huge history around that that we definitely don't have time to get into. But there's also a different experience, as we've touched on, for black men interacting with this system and they're responded to in a different way again. And that contributes to the kind of response of the system that also intersects with issues like poverty, homelessness, failings in social care, experiences of trauma, abuse, and the failure of our care services to respond to any of that. And it just made me think about me as a child after my mum was shot and I was traumatised and I had a lot of anger issues as a result of what I saw, right? And so therefore, rather than me getting the support around that, you're constantly getting like harsh treatment and punishment around it. So whether it's school or outside of school, when you have any contact with police they are probably more harder on you rather than trying to understand the fact that okay this this child has gone through some serious stuff right and it's quite understandable that this person is responding in this way and what can we do to support this person knowing what we know yeah and I think something that's really important to acknowledge in the conversations around mental health is that mental illness doesn't come out of thin air Some people might be born with mental health challenges that will play out in their lifetime, but also we have to acknowledge the impact 
that social systems and social harms like racism, like experiences of trauma, sexual violence, all these things have that create mental illness. And that is what the systems are also responding to. But often it's seen as a standalone thing. Like you are unwell, you are angry, you are whatever, without acknowledging the things in our society and in our life experiences that are contributing to that, which is why we have these gendered dynamics, racialized dynamics that play out in our mental health systems. So to finish, we're going to hear from Moira speaking about what Jess was like as a person. Had I known about the pain of love and someone gave me a choice, I think I might have have gone without the, the love in order to avoid the pain. She was very bossy, eldest child, really mm. bright. And mm. when she was a child, she was so happy. She was so, so full of joy. I thought there'd be a long, long life for her to live. She was, she was very um, switched on to injustice. I think our sort of politics always tended to be a bit left. So she was, she was suspicious of big, big business and and privilege and all of that well she knew she had a privilege she was she was very aware of that but she was very much for like justice and equality and she was going on marches and things like that you know she was quite she found dealing with politicians and looking at the news and stuff where they always say one thing and do another she found that really upsetting she was quite sensitive in in that and she used to talk about how the news was ruining her mental health In the next episode, we'll be speaking to Melanie Leahy about her campaign for justice. After her son died in the care of Essex Mental Health Services and her successful campaign for a public inquiry. I wanted the truth. I I knew right from the go that I hadn't received the truth. And I think that's what every family wants, not to be lied to. But, uh, you know, we want truth, we want accountability. Our loved one died, for God's sake. I want to know what happened to him and who's responsible. We know that this is a really difficult episode. If you've been affected by any of the themes that have come up, please go to the links in the episode notes. If you think other people would like Unlawful Killing, then please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Ratings and feedback really help others discover the show. If you have a story to share, get in touch via communications at inquest.org.uk or on social media. We'd also like to pay tribute to the thousands of bereaved families who have worked alongside Inquest. Thank you to each and every one of you who have created powerful legacies for your loved ones and contributed to important changes which protect all of us. Unlawful Killing is made in partnership with Inquest and Aunt Nell, presented by me, Lucy Brisbane, and Lee Lawrence, produced by Leila Hagman and Naomi Oppenheim. Consultant producers Tash Walker and Adam Smith. The music in this podcast is by Dave Okumu. This podcast is part funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. We're grateful that this podcast series is supported by Hodge, Jones & Allen, a key law firm in the fight for what's right. Their lawyers help people right wrongs, fight injustice and defend people's rights. Inquest have worked with Hodge, Jones & Allen on countless cases from the Marchioness disaster of 1989 to the ongoing Essex Mental Health Inquiry. 
Thanks also to the students from the Centre for Social Justice Research at the University of Westminster who helped with the research for the podcast. And finally, we'd like to thank everyone who's participated in our oral history project. We'd also like to thank Moira Doherty, Tipa Naftali and Omi Martin for participating in our oral history project.